So literally our like requests per minute go from 10 or 20,000 per minute to 60,000 per minute within like a couple minutes. So it's this violent surge of traffic. I came in and I had strong opinions about, especially process wise, like, you know, what's the best way to run agile teams? What's the best way to build software in an agile fashion? And, you know, I think I tried to shove those positions down people's throat a little bit. And what, what I've kind of learned as a leader is that it's a lot better to, to express your vision clearly and concisely and try to get buy-in for the vision, kind of explain where you want the company to be at, but not necessarily how you want your leaders to get there. Hello and welcome to the DevEye Podcast. I'm your host, Cameron Perrone, and here I decode engineering experts behind some of the most complex, high-performing, and scalable stacks to find out what technologies they love and use, what challenges they face, and what the real life is like behind the code. Okay, Kareem, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Cameron. It's great to be here. Absolutely. Tell us a little bit about Coffee Meets Bagel. Sure. So Coffee Meets Bagel is a top-tier dating app. Um, we have a great reputation for being the dating app uh, that people use to meet their, their husbands or wives and form really solid relationships. Um, we focus on quality over quantity, and we do a lot of work on our algorithm and our, the data science front to give our users a really curated set of potential matches, which we call bagels. Great, great. Uh, when did you feel that you were making real progress as a CTO? I think that there was a point at which I stopped worrying about all the little details. There was a point at which I stopped reviewing every single pull request that came in. And there was a point where I really started to focus on the high level things. And, you know, it was that point where I felt like that I could execute on my vision as CTO and that we could start moving towards the type of platform and type of system that we want. Um, I think that was kind of the turning point for me. Got it. Okay. Uh, what does the stack look like? So we're pretty much completely on AWS. We have a little bit uh, in Google Cloud. Uh, we use a number of AWS services, of course, EC2, S3, SQS, Lambda, Kinesis, Redshift, CloudFront, Elastic Cache. Uh, our, our primary application on our backend is written in Python. Uh, we use a Django framework, uh, mostly just for web services. Mm -hmm. uh, we use a number of different data stores, uh, Cassandra, Postgres, uh, Redis. Uh, we use Titan. We're getting off Titan. Uh, and then we have uh, mobile clients. That's our only access point to our backend, our, our, our native Android and iOS clients. Okay. Uh, how large are, are the uh, data sets of, of uh, Cassandra, Postgres, and Redis? So Cassandra and, and Postgres each have a few terabytes in them. Uh, we have uh, two cluster Cassandra um, build out. Uh, we have five Postgres nodes, master and four slaves. Um, Redis, I, I think we have a few hundred gigabytes. Uh, we use a few different flavors of Redis. We use like Redis cluster, mostly for data that uh, we don't need to do set intersections on that, that's easily shardable across, you know, uh, horizontally. We use traditional like master slave Redis. Uh, we put data in there that we, that we definitely have to do set intersections on. 
Um, and we use Elastic Cache also, the managed Redis from, from AWS to do, to do some other things. How do you, how do you decide between using uh, an open source solution like Redis and like having resources managing that versus using a managed service like Elastic Cache or, or something else? Yeah, so a couple different ways. Number one, it comes down to what we have familiarity with. You know, I have an awesome DevOps team, and you know, if if we're in looking at a, a technology that we haven't used in our stack before, and we have experience with it in house, and we don't think that we need to pay for a managed service, then we're going to try to do it in house. If it's something that we're not too comfortable with, then and it's not too expensive, then you know, we'll we'll go with a managed service. But um, it's a it's a fluid decision-making process that depends on the technology involved and the expertise that we have in-house. Okay. Uh, what other open-source technologies are you currently using? Pretty much everything we use is open-source. Um, you know, Python, Django is, is open-source. Our Android app, pretty much all open-source. Um, all of our data stores, Cassandra, Postgres, Redis, all open-source. Uh, we use a number of different things that kind of plug into um, Python, um, like GUnicorn, um, GEvent, these are open source tools to help us with concurrency on Python because concurrency on Python is kind of sucks. Mm -hmm. um, we use Nginx for routing at the web server level uh, to our different web services. And I forgot to mention earlier, we, uh, we're kind of starting our, our evolution of the platform into microservices and uh, a lot of new services that we're starting to build out are in Scala. Uh, we also use Golang for some DevOpsy things. Um, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so Python, Scala, and Golang, all open source languages. Okay. Give us a sense of, of, of what kind of scale you're trying to meet. Okay, sure. Uh, so I can't uh, talk about specific user numbers, but we have millions of users. We have, um, if you look at our peak traffic, uh, it, it goes up to around 60,000 uh, requests per minute. Mm -hmm. um, so that'll give you a sense of the kind of scale that we have to handle uh, at our peaks. Right, right. If you could describe some of the craziest backend challenges, like specifically that you've, you've had to face, what it was and, and what you did to solve them, it'd be great. Okay, sure. We have a, a, a crazy backend challenge every single day at noon. Um, right. If you're familiar with our product, our kind of our gimmick is that every day at noon, we send you your batch of bagels. And, uh, what that means is, uh, so we don't, we don't actually send you anything. Uh, we send all of our users a push notification at noon in their time zone. Um, so it starts at, at noon Eastern time. That is, that's our first slam of traffic. So right around noon Eastern time, we send all of our users in, uh, on the East Coast a push notification. And right around then, when they get the push notification, you know, they're having lunch. They're like, okay, cool. My bagels are here. I'm going to open Coffee Meets Bagel. They open the app and we get flooded with network requests. Okay. Uh, so literally our like requests per minute go from 10 or 20,000 per minute to 60,000 per minute within like a couple of minutes. So it's this violent surge of traffic. Uh, and th that is a constant challenge for us to make sure that our systems are warmed up, to make sure that our systems are pre-scaled out to handle that traffic and to make sure that our, our, our database layer is going to be able to handle uh, all the requests coming into it. Right. So, so all day long, um, the end user process or flow is, is one where guys and girls are like swiping left or right if they like each other. And then. So we're noon, not a swiping app. Okay. Yeah. We, there's no swiping in our app. 
Um, we have buttons for liking and passing, and that's okay. because we want you to take a little bit more time uh, to evaluate your match. But sorry to interrupt. I just want to make that a point that we're, not, in, a, yeah. we're not a swiping app. Right. And uh, it, it works in a way where the, where the woman chooses, right? Isn't that how it works? And the new time, like the... Explain, yeah. please. Yeah. So our company is founded by three sisters, uh, the Kang sisters. And our mission has always been about empowering the female experience in the dating world. And so a lot of our features are geared towards making the female experience um, better, safer, easier, less intimidating, mm -hmm. uh, what have you. So the primary flow of our app, um, men see a lot more potential matches than women because men are fine with going through many more matches than women. So men get, you know, maybe 20 potential matches in a day and they choose which women that they like. And then the women, for the most part, only see men who have already liked them. So for a woman, the experience is really streamlined. Like pretty much every single guy that she sees uh, has already liked her and she can just pick the guys that she likes. And those guys will most likely meet uh, the majority of her criteria. So, you know, we're going to prioritize showing the woman guys who already liked her who meet um, probably all of her criteria, hopefully. Okay, great. So you're saying this is a major, a major challenge. So at noon, you have around 60K requests suddenly, right? Yeah. And it happens... A few times across the United States, and I'm sure it happens in different countries as well. Yeah. Um, so, so what does that look like, and 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 what have you done to uh, to meet that? Sure. So, what we do is we use uh, on AWS. Uh, we use auto scaling groups, and you can schedule them on auto uh, on AWS to scale up at certain times of day. Um, so, you know, before noon in um, on the East Coast, we scale up our our web servers dramatically in order to handle that traffic, and that, you know, that's easy enough. It's easy enough to scale up your web servers so that you have enough free processes to handle all the requests coming in. That doesn't necessarily mean that your database layer is going to be able to handle all those requests. So we kind of have to make sure that our database layer is, is always scaled up because you can't scale up and down your database layer on demand, really, because right. there's no way to, like, copy all the data that you need to in, into a new database in time to, like, scale up within three minutes for a violent traffic search. Right. So we have to constantly monitor our databases to make sure that, that they're going to be able to handle whatever the next, you know, the next traffic spike is. And so we have to forecast our traffic out and know that you know, these violent traffic spikes, they could be 3x, they could be 5x. Um, if we do a marketing campaign or our, our Shark Tank episode is aired again, um, it could be 10x. Um, so it's, it's a little bit of an unknown and uh, a little bit of an art uh, that we're constantly perfecting all the time. What was the impact of, of the Shark Tank episode on your stack? Well, the very first time it aired, I was actually not CTO then, but um, we, it was a, a huge business effort to, to pre-warm our systems and to, to pre-scale our database layer um, so that we could handle that traffic. Um, I think it was something like 10x. Uh, but our Shark Tank episode was one of it is one of the most popular because Mark Cuban made like this huge offer to basically buy the entire company. And so they, they keep re-airing it. Like every couple months they re-air it right. and we get spikes <laughs> in traffic and we don't know when it's going to happen. Uh, so, you know, it's just some random evening, you know, every, every couple months or sometimes they'll like air it in Australia and it'll be like, you know, in the middle of the morning or something. Right, right. 
And so we don't know when it's going to happen. And, and that, that could, you know, that could instantly increase our traffic by two or three X. Okay. Got it. Um, we were speaking earlier about running out of memory in Redis. Mm. What happened exactly? Well, when you add too many things to Redis, then you run out of memory. And <laughs> <laughs> when Redis runs out of memory, then it crashes. And uh, if you don't have your data backed up, then you lose data. Right. And so um, we, had, we had a bad outage around Thanksgiving because you know, we made some application changes and we started adding more data than uh, we thought we were adding to Redis and the memory just kind of exploded. And unfortunately, we had turned off backups on that cluster uh, because we were seeing this weird behavior where every time a backup would happen, even though it was supposedly happening in the background, we'd see this latency spike in Redis. And that was not acceptable for us. So uh, we, we turned off backups and just kind of forgot about it. We got caught up in you know day-to-day -day work. And um, next thing we know, Redis is crashing and our last backup is like three months old. And so we basically lost three months of data you know, within a split second, and we had to, uh, luckily, the majority of that data, I think like 90% of that data was uh, permanently stored in other data stores, so we were able to recover it, um, and we were able to get our system back to a working state, you know, within a few hours, and then we were able to backfill all the data in there within a few days, but our users had a degraded experience for, for a few days, so that was one of our worst outages ever. Okay. Uh, what did you do to, to resolve the problem exactly? So, well, first we inspected the recent pull request. We figured out, you know, what was the recent code change that caused more data to be, to be put into Redis. And then uh, we created a, a new Redis slave whose only purpose was backups. So it, it, all it did was just sync data from master and do backups. And uh, having that, uh, relieve the rest of the cluster so that you know there was no latency spikes when when that particular node was doing backups and so that's how we got around that. Mm -hmm. uh, we also spoke about uh, scaling uh, your database layers from like a few hundred gigabytes to terabytes. Can you explain yeah. a little more about that? Yeah, um, I mean since I've been CTO, I, I think that our DAUs and MAUs have, have doubled or tripled, um, and that means that you know we're storing more and more data in our primary, mostly our primary data store. Um, Postgres is, is definitely the hardest to scale. Um, you know, the first, first instinct, I think, is to scale it up vertically and just use bigger instance types in AWS. Uh, so we've done that a couple times, you know, just gone to instances um, with more storage, with, with more IOPS, with more CPU so it can handle more load. But that only goes so far. You can't rely on AWS to, like, continually create bigger and beefier instance types forever. Right. So um, a lot of the optimization that we've done around Postgres has involved um, optimizing queries, um, denormalizing data, um, so that you know, we don't have these queries that are just using up tons of resources. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about microservices, how, like what your philosophy is on that and, and how you use them. Yeah, so we are, are just starting in our, our evolution or revolution to microservices. I look at it as a, a necessary evolution of our platform. I think that, that as you scale, you, you just kind of outgrow 
your your databases. And for us, microservices is is a way for uh, for us to scale our our platform. I think infinitely, and um, be able to scale up and down individual parts of it in response to to load on individual parts of our system, as well as you know I think in the future right now we really only have one app, Coffee Meets Bagel, but I think there's a good chance in the future that we want to build other apps, uh, maybe in the dating space, maybe in the social space, but there's a good chance that those apps could use those same microservices that we have for our main Coffee Meets Bagel app. So there's an element of reusability as well. And another nice thing about microservices for us is that right now we're primarily a Python shop, but we don't necessarily think that Python is the language that we want to go with for the future. So right. uh, having microservices allows us to, to experiment with other languages. As I mentioned before, a lot of new services that we're working on, we're building out in Scala mm -hmm. um, for performance reasons, um, uh, mostly concurrency. Scala handles concurrency a lot better than Python. Uh, and, you know, it allows us to be um, polyglot. It allows us to be poly data store. I don't know if that's a word, but okay. um, it allows us some experimentation. And um, we're all about that. You know, we believe in using the best, the best tools for the job. And uh, th I think that takes a little bit of experimentation. Great. Let's go back a bit. What, what was your motivation to join Coffee Meets Bagels as, as CTO? So I actually joined as... Uh, the head of Android, they, they hired me to build the Android app and to build up the Android team. Uh, that's what I had been doing previously in my career. So I, uh, oh, and also I was at a point in my career where I had just got laid off from my last company and, um, I which got, one was that? That was Tinder. Okay. And, uh, I got a nice severance. Uh, the first time in my career I ever really got a severance. And, um, I had a couple months to figure out like what I wanted to do. And it was always my dream to find a company that would let me work from anywhere in the world. And okay. so the only companies I talked to were those that would let me do so. And coffee were you, were you, I'm sorry, were you, were, you, were you based in LA or in, uh, in San Francisco? I, I was living in LA at the time. Okay. And um, Coffee Meets Bagel was one of a handful of companies that was going to let me do that. And I picked Coffee Meets Bagel because of uh, one, like great product, um, really beautiful, engaging product. And I liked their our mission uh, of empowering the female experience on the dating app. I thought that that was a great idea and I think key to winning in, in this market. Also, I was really impressed with the founders and the executive team. Uh, they were really, really data focused. Uh, we make, you know, all of our decisions pretty much on data and A-B testing and, and analyzing our users' behavior. Um, so I felt like this, this company had the right mix of product and leadership that I wanted to join. And so I joined and uh, I worked remotely all over the world for a couple of years. And then our previous CTO uh, decided that he wanted to move on and, and move to New York and, and build, build something new. And okay. uh, so they offered me the job, but, but they were like, you know, if you want the job, you have to come back to San Francisco and work in the office. So that was, that was the deal, but I'm happy to be in San Francisco. Why would you move? I mean, there's, there's a pretty hot scene in L.A. I mean, what was, was there a personal motivation to move back to San Francisco aside from the job as well? It's a high cost of living here. You know, you have to move again, yeah. make new friends. Yeah. Your significant other may or may not be happy about that. I mean, what, was there another kind of motivation around that? For, for me, you know, I don't really get, get grounded in places. I'm kind of nomadic. Right. Um, 
you know, I kind of just chase the work and I'm, I'm passionate about the work. And so for me, it's more important for me to be passionate about the work than to be somewhere where I've made friends or that's warm, like L.A. <laughs> um, L.A. is nice. L.A. is nice. I, I do miss the weather there um, but and the beach. Um, but and the traffic, right? I ride a motorcycle, so traffic's okay. not a problem. Uh, but for me, I'd rather join a company that I'm super excited about um, right. rather than just stay somewhere because I'm there. Okay. Um, let's talk about uh, how you hire engineers. How important is, is hiring to you? And how do you find and convince talent to join the team? Yeah, I mean, hiring is everything. Um, we have a huge, huge emphasis on hiring here. Um, we pride ourselves in hiring world-class engineers. And every single one of my engineers uh, out there is amazing. And we have a few primary avenues of recruiting. Um, one, you know, we, we have an in-house recruiter. He's, he's our head of operations. And uh, he, he reaches out uh, mostly on LinkedIn. Uh, we also have uh, a tech blog at tech.coffeemeetsbagel.com where you know, we highlight our engineering work and hope to rec recruit people that way. And um, some of the, the senior engineering leaders here, we go out and you know, we go to meetups, conferences, and try to meet people. Um, but it's always a struggle. You know? We're not Google or Facebook, right. uh, but I think that we offer things that, that those big companies cannot, like um, the ability to wear many hats and, and perform many job functions uh, and have access to you know, the CEO and the CTO, and you, you'll, you'll be working with those kind of people on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and we just have a really close-knit group. Uh, I think there's a lot to be said for working for a 35-person startup versus Google or Facebook or something like that. Great. Can you give us an example of, of how you failed as a CTO here? Um, Failure is really important in any company, right? Yeah, yeah, I think failure is important. Um, I think for me, so, some of my failure um, initially was in having this kind of like command and control attitude about the job. Um, I came in and uh, I had strong opinions about, especially process wise, like, you know, what's the best way to run agile teams? What's the best way to build software in an agile fashion? And, you know, I think I tried to shove those, those positions down people's throat a little bit. Um, and what, what I've kind of learned as a leader is that it's a lot better to, to express your vision clearly and concisely and try to get buy-in for the vision, kind of explain where you want the company to be at, but not necessarily how you want your leaders to get there. Right. Um, so that was definitely a maturity that I went through as a CTO. Can you give an example of how that actually looked? Yeah, I mean, the, the, like the biggest example that, that I think some of my engineering managers struggled with was, you know, right when I came in, you know, like some of our teams were, were tracking velocity per sprint, some weren't. Uh, and I wanted everybody to track velocity because I wanted, to be able, I wanted us to be able to determine and analyze how we were improving or not improving as an engineering organization. And um, so I kind of came uh, with a plan. I, I tried to get buy-in on the plan. Um, there was some pushback from a couple of my senior engineers, the leaders of engineering teams. And it turned into kind of like 
a nasty like argument because they didn't they didn't want to be told how to run their engineering teams. So, you know, if I had to do that over again, I would say, look, it, it is our goal to be able to track your velocity um, because this is how we can measure our performance as an engineering team. How you do that, that's up to you. You know, this may be my recommendation, but I'm not going to dictate to you how to do that. Great. Okay. So you're, you're empowering your, your tech leaders to generate their own KPIs with their teams? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, this was specifically around how much work they're getting done in a sprint. Right. Um, but yeah, it, we, we're, I, I also, and us as a company, we try to get our engineering leaders to, to come up with their own KPIs, the things that, that they think are important for their team to be hitting. And um, we have them like report on those KPIs at our all-hands meeting. Right, okay. Uh, how do you deal with, with uh, bad apples on the team? Well, disgruntled, exhausted, stressed out guy that's just, you know, mm, mm. bringing a negative vibe to the uh, project, maybe just just not bringing the right kind of uh, attitude, maybe mm -hmm. uh, sabotaging other people's work without even really even knowing it. Have you encountered those those kinds of instances before in the past? Not too much, but but a little a little bit here and there. And, you know, I, in a small team, it can be totally destructive, right? Because it can be agreed. so subtle. Agreed. Yeah. From my experience, you really have to, to get down to the root of the issue and find out why someone is disgruntled. Do they feel like they're not being heard? Do they feel like their opinions don't matter? Uh, which I think is a lot of time the case if somebody feels like they're not being included um, in processes. Do they feel undercompensated? Um, you know, it's important to, to get down to the bottom of it and have, have a candid conversation. And one of our, one of our company values is fearless candor. And, um, so we actually look for that in people we interview and, um, fearless candor, fearless candor. What does that mean? Well, that means, um, being forthright in your conversations, not ever being afraid to voice your opinion right? and being able to listen to someone's feedback about you. Uh, without taking it personally right. and understanding that the reason that we're candid with each other is for the benefit of the company. I like that. Yeah. That's great. Okay. How do you deal with distraction or with a discouragement, both in your personal life and in your, and in your business life? Sure. So I think those are two very different things. So just in terms of distraction, um, you know, I, th I think we, we all know at this point in our engineering careers that distraction uh, kills engineering productivity. Um, I think it was, was Microsoft who did a study on it and they determined that like every time you distract an engineer, um, if they're deep into, you know, solving some problem, then it could take anywhere from five to 15 minutes for that engineer to get back into their problem. Right. So uh, reducing and eliminating distraction has actually been a huge priority for me. You know, I encourage my engineers to turn off all their notifications, um, whether that be on their phone, especially on their phone, yeah. um, uh, on Slack uh, or email. You yeah. know, if you need uh, a two-hour block or more of time to focus on a specific problem, um, then do it. Nobody's going to hold it against you because you didn't reply to your Slack message, you know, within, right. within five minutes or whatever. Uh, I also encourage people to only check their email a few times a day, you know, maybe when you come in, maybe after lunch, and maybe before you go home for the day. Right. Um, and also just, you know, if you need to, or maybe even if you don't need to, but if it helps you to just block off time on your calendar, uh, for times that you want to be, uh, uninterrupted. So that's important. Um, 
in terms of, of discouragement, I think that, that again, like a disgruntled employee, discouragement is an indicator that something is, is not right. Yeah. Something is wrong. And um, so we need to have a conversation about it. Uh, we need to be candid about it. Um, I hope that discouragement is not happening too often here. We have, we have a culture of continuous learning here. Um, so, you know, all of our engineering teams, after every sprint, they have a postmortem and they talk about what they did well. They also talk about things that went wrong and what we can learn from them. So I would hope that any discouragement is not lasting more than, more than a sprint. And, and if it is, you know, regardless if it is or not, we have to find out how to make it better. Um, that usually involves experimentation, trying new things, getting creative, thinking outside the box. Um, so, so we can figure out, you know, how to make it better. Uh, you, you mentioned earlier about, uh, using data to be more competitive. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. explain more about how you look at like at a competition and how you use data to be more competitive. Yeah. So this, this is how I look at coffee meets bagel. We are a, a data analytics company that happens to help people date. Right. Right. Um, and you know, that's not in, in our marketing message, but if you look at our day-to-day -day operations, a lot of it centers around data. Right. So we're, we're constantly gathering data. We're constantly uh, analyzing data. We have an awesome data science team here that is constantly experimenting with our algorithm, constantly pulling in new data sources to figure out what data source matters. You know, right. what, what, what are the points of data that actually make a difference in the, in the dating business? And I think that uh, that is our competitive advantage, and that's why uh, we have some of the, the highest connection rates in the industry. And that's why we're able to, to match people up so effectively. And, um, you know, and we have so many marriages come in all the time. Great. For, for an engineer that's thinking about uh, developing an application now, a few questions on this. One is how do you focus on doing that without exposing yourself to too much risk? So in other words, is it, does it make sense to start like to start a project on the side and to scale it up while still working in a company or to find a certain like uh, test of scale where you meet certain parameters and then go full on into it, manage multiple projects at the same time, see which one works, mm. which one in your, in your opinion, which one worked the best either for you or that you really believe in? So I've tried to start a few companies on the side, um, to varying degrees of success. And it's really freaking hard, you know, you story go, of my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I've started three different companies nights and weekends while having a day job. Right. And it's exhausting. You feel like you never have any time to yourself. And in my opinion, your work suffers. You're not, you're not able to do your best work on your side project and you're not able to do your best work, you know, at your day job. What was the project specifically that, that, you're, that you're thinking about? Or just, I don't know, if you could just yeah. mention so a few of them. The, the last one um, was called Social Tag. Uh, we, uh, we built a service that I like to say it was a combination of Eventbrite and LinkedIn. It was event networking software. So uh, we had mobile apps, we had a backend platform. Uh, you go to an event, you fire up our app, and it would tell you who else was at the event and give you kind of a leg up on networking. Okay. Um, built up a team of like 10 people in, in LA. We're all working for equity, all working, uh, part-time nights and weekend for the most part. 
Uh, and, and ultimately, like, we were nebul- never able to make the product good enough and to put enough effort into marketing to, uh, to get funded. So that company never got funded. Um, before that, in Seattle, I started a company called iBooze. And uh, it was kind of one of the first on-demand delivery services. Um, this was before, like, the iPhone and Android got big. Um, so it was, a, it was a web service. And you go on, you order uh, mostly alcohol, and we Sounds deliver. Sounds very legit, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Problem-free, li- actually, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, we deliver it to you within an hour. And um, it was actually going very well. Um, I, it was a profitable business I was running. Uh, for, I started in my garage, you know, stereotypical uh, startup in, in the garage, and outgrew my garage. I got a warehouse in downtown Seattle, um, wow. had uh, like four full-time employees uh, while I was still, it, like it, it, it never got big enough for me to quit my day job, um, but it got big enough to sustain itself, right. and it was running. Um, but I was exhausted. I would finish my day job at five and then I would go run iBooze from like six to two in the morning right. know, and then rinse and repeat. And as a result of that, I, I overlooked some legal issues and the city of Seattle ended up shutting the business down. And oh, great. so I lost that business. I thought that was going to be my ticket to early retirement. Um, you know, it's just, it's, it's hard to stay on top of all the different pieces required to run a successful business. Now, if you're just talking about a hobby, sure, like we should all have hobbies. You should be building stuff on the side. You should be experimenting. You should be going to hackathons and learning and building and creating. Um, right. If that's your thing, <laughs> it's it's definitely my thing. And so I, I always like to be creating. Um, but at the point at, at which you want to start a business, you better be willing to sacrifice everything, or you better be willing to figure out how to do that full time, or else it's going to be really hard. Right. Okay. Um, when does it make sense to invest into building, um, an Android application? <laughs> That's a loaded question. Um, I came from Android, so I, I'm probably biased here, but, uh, I was an Android developer for like five years. So I don't think there's, there's ever, uh, not a time to build an Android app unless, unless your market is just like, rich Americans. Like if rich Americans are your market, which like in San Francisco, everybody thinks rich Americans are their market. So sure, like go build your, your, your iOS app first. But if you're trying to build a global scale app and a service that's on a global scale, in my opinion, you should start on Android because last time I checked, well, it was probably a year or two ago, but last time I checked, Android still had like 80% market share globally. Right. So if your goal is to get users and to build up a huge platform, I would start on Android. If your goal is to make money off rich Americans, then sure, start on iOS. All right. So how does your morning look like when you wake up? I wake up at six. I go to the gym or go on a run. Uh, then I feed and uh, get to work around 8.30, start cranking away. How about breakfast? Breakfast is a protein bar before my workout and then a smoothie afterwards. Okay. Great. What is your opinion on living in San Francisco? Is it, is it a place one should live if they're pursuing a career in tech? I think San Francisco is a great place to live if you're pursuing a career in tech. But it's not the only place to live if you're pursuing a career in tech. I think that if you're pursuing a career in tech, you should do it from wherever you are. And if the job, whatever job 
whatever company that you want to work for happens to take you to San Francisco, which it has a few times in my life, then take it. San Francisco is great. It's a great place to live. But, you know, San Francisco is great because you have this incredible community of entrepreneurs and technologists here. You have a ton of smart people, but there are pockets of smart people all around the world. I mean, you know, I lived in Indonesia, in Bali, and there's hacker houses in, right. in Bali. Um, you know, there's great communities in other places around the United States, Austin, New York, LA, Seattle, Portland is burgeoning tech scene. Um, so I think it's, you know, I wouldn't recommend just moving to San Francisco because you think that San Francisco is going to launch your career and get you into tech and it's going to be so great. I know a lot of people who moved to San Francisco and they've been disappointed because it's really hard to get a job here. It's really competitive. Um, so if you're not at the top of your field, um, it's not easy. There, there are a lot of jobs here, but there's also a lot of engineers here trying to get jobs. So, you know, I, I think that that quality of life matters and you might make more money in San Francisco, but that doesn't necessarily mean your quality of life is going to be better because everything costs more in San Francisco. But isn't so, it relative? Like, like if you were to live in, I don't know, like Omaha, for example, mm -hmm. it's all relative, right? So like you might be spending less, but your, your ability to earn is much less too. And even if you're working as an outsourced uh, engineer, your salary is adjusted, right? Sometimes, sometimes not. Some companies definitely adjust your salary. Some don't. I've, I've worked remotely and I've made pretty close to what I would make in San Francisco. We have people working remotely. Um, we have someone in Seattle, we have someone in Missouri, and they make pretty close to what they'd make in San Francisco. And that's a practice for a lot of companies. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think you should, you should stay put, but if, if the job takes you to San Francisco or if the job takes you to New York or LA or Seattle and you're passionate about it, then you should follow your passion. Okay. A question on that is managing teams that are working remotely or in an open office. How does that impact uh, productivity of your team? It varies. I mean, a lot of people are, myself included, are more productive outside of the office. So if you can lock me in a hotel room right. uh, or, or wherever in my house, uh, I'm going to be more productive than I am at the office because I get distracted right. at an office. Um, other people, they get distracted at home because they have kids or the TV is so close or, or they take a nap or whatever. So it's all on an individual basis. And for us, you know, we only hire remote people who are, are very senior at the top of their fields, uh, people that we know we can trust. Um, for the most part, everybody else comes to work at the office every day. Uh, although we do have a pretty flexible like work from home policy um, because we, we want people to be able to have the flexibility in their lives to, to work when they're at home. And also we know that like people have other things going on in their life. So when they're here, even when they're here, they're going to have to do personal things sometimes. And we know that when they're home, they're going to be working sometimes. Um, right. So we try to have a, a flexible environment that caters to people's needs. Okay. Let's talk about your own, your own career as an engineer. Uh, you graduated college in 2003, right? Yep. What happened? There's a recession or post-recession, yeah. pre-2008, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, did you go right into a company and work there? Did you take some time off? What did you do? So yeah, I graduated in June of 2003, and the economy was still reeling from the dot-com bust. Right. 
uh, and it was tough to get a job. Uh, but you know, there, there, I went to UC Santa Barbara. There were uh, I studied computer science there. there. There were recruiters who who would come there from companies. So I talked to some, and I got I got one job in software. It was building software for a bank. It, I think it was in Java, which was what they taught us in school back then. And I hear Java's making a comeback, by the way. But anyway, um, so that that was one option. Uh, the other option was this this recruiter came from this resort on Saipan. Uh, called the Pacific Islands Club in Saipan, and he was. Hold on, Sai, Sai, just just so everyone knows where this place is. Saipan is is like in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, right? Like it's yeah. south of Hawaii. I think it's between Hawaii and it's, Australia. It's, or something? it's actually much farther uh, west of Hawaii. It's actually south of Japan. Uh, it's wow. in the middle of the South Pacific in a group of islands called the Northern Marianas Islands, uh, which are all owned by the United States. The United States took them in World War II from Japan. Uh, you have uh, Saipan, Tinian, Guam, Rota. I might be missing one, but okay. pretty small islands. I think this island, Saipan, was six miles by ten miles. Anyway, this recruiter came from this from this uh, this resort, and he's looking for uh, windsurfing instructors and ocean lifeguards and um, swimming instructors. And I happen to be perfect for the job because I I was a collegiate swimmer. Uh, I was also an ocean lifeguard, and so they offered me the job. So I had two choices. And I was like, oh, you know what, like software can wait. <laughs> so right. I took this job out in Saipan and I lived there for about a year. It, it was paradise. And um, I, don't, I don't regret it, but when I came back, it was, it was even harder than I expected it to be to find a job in software. Um, you know, I was 23 years old. I had never done an internship or anything in school because I was, you know, I was ocean lifeguarding and, and just having fun. And um, I interviewed with a lot of companies, and uh, nobody would hire me. Um, I probably interviewed with like 20 companies. And finally, I ended up getting a job with Electronic Arts down in Redwood Shores, California. And my job was, it was called a language integration technician. Basically, the job was to take uh, files of strings, string assets, in other languages, like German, Spanish, whatever. Language didn't matter and put it into games, uh, both console games and like handheld games, like Game Boy and stuff. Right. Uh, and then just make sure it worked. So I'd put the language assets in there and play through the game, make sure that everything looks right, all the sounds are playing and everything. So it was, it was kind of like tedious work, but I did get to play video games all day. But I don't know, for anyone who's ever tested video games, it's, it's not that fun. Like the video games are like, you know, in varying states of completion from like, just like just starting out to like half-baked, like nearly done. And you have to play like the same game like over and over and over again. <laughs> anyway, so uh, they laid me off after like four months. Oh uh, man! Which okay. yeah, Electronic Arts has a nasty reputation for that. Um, but it was a blessing because after that I got into mobile, and uh, I got into mobile before smartphones, and I've never looked back. Mobile has okay. been been a blessing for my career. Awesome. Okay, uh, if you were to start all over again to the day that you decided to be a software engineer, what would you do differently? Where to go back, like to when you were thinking about going to Saipan? What would you do differently? Oh, oh, I would have still gone to Saipan, um, <laughs> but you know, I would have focused on building something cool while I was there in my spare time. I was kind of like at that point in my life, I was like, oh, it would be cool to have like a, a boutique web development shop, and so I was taking right. like I was taking small jobs here and there, building websites for just random small businesses and people. 
And, you know, making, making small money here and there, but it really didn't move the needle. But I thought that was a good use of my skills. And if I look back on it at, at that point, I would have, you know, I would have focused on, on building something that I want to use. I would have focused on, you know, building a startup, building something cool. Um, those kind of thoughts just weren't kind of in my head at that time. I kind of, it wasn't until, you know, I got into like my, my mid to late twenties that that kind of registered as like, that's what I want to do with my career is I want to build cool things. Right. Okay. Uh, what is one opinion that you hold very close that others wouldn't agree with that specifically pertains to your work environment and business? Um, let's see. I think, so in terms of business, um, one, one is, is that collaboration doesn't always lead to better product or, or more productivity. Um, okay. Yeah. I think, um, especially like with this millennial culture we have, that they're very focused on, on collaboration. A lot of like new, uh, young employees I get in, they're all, oh, we want to collaborate. We want to collaborate. We want to collaborate. All right. And I think that's great. Like I think collaboration yields a lot of great ideas. Um, but there, there has to be like to be an effective engineering organization, uh, and collaboration is great in engineering. Don't get me wrong, um, but there is a point at which, in order to be the most productive, in my opinion, you have to kind of stop collaborating and just kind of put your head down and get some work done. Does that mean the collaboration is it like a degree of like how many people are collaborating together? And the result of that, or is it just like the principle of collaborating like too frequently? It's with- both. It's both. I think that, that we, uh, in, in a lot of startup culture, uh, we kind of take it too far. Right. Um, we, you know, we're pulling engineers into meetings all the time to get their opinion on things. Uh, and it's, it's a distraction. Right. And so I think we need to be very careful about how much and how often we're asking our engineers to collaborate. Right. Okay. Good. But, but I just, I just want to make it a point. I do believe in pair programming. I do believe in pair programming on a regular basis. So there's kind of a distinction between like collaborating with your engineering peers versus collaborating with, you know, design, product, marketing. And I think, you know, the job of a, a lead engineer or a manager is to kind of shield their engineers um, from those kind of collaborative meetings. Right. Okay. Any other opinion that you have business-wise you want you have to speak to? Um, I think another thing that we've kind of gone overboard with lately uh, is Agile. I think that Agile is great. Like We should strive to be Agile in the way that we build software. Um, but it doesn't always lead to, th- to the best results, especially if we're, we're often changing course you know, midway through projects or requirements are not explicitly defined or clearly enough defined. Right. I think that gets us into a lot of trouble. And I think a lot of companies, a lot of product people, they kind of fall into this crutch of, oh, we're agile. So that means that I don't have to like clearly define this product or or we're agile. So that means that like we don't have to write product requirements. Right. Um, and I think that, that that's a trap that leads to uh, number one, long it take longer to build something. And number two, it ends up being more buggy because engineers aren't focused on building the best thing right at the outset. Right. Okay, good. Tell me an opinion that you hold closer to yourself that others may not agree with that is on a totally personal level, not connected with work. Okay, sure. So, um, I mean, one thing that I believe is that prolific speakers or people who talk a lot 
aren't always the prolific thinkers. Who who specifically? Anybody. Anybody. But seriously, I mean, like like who? Like a real example. A real example. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I, I have friends. I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna name <laughs> name people. Um, but you know, I think there's there's some people who really like to hear themselves being heard. Sure. And they like to hear themselves speak, I should say. And there's a lot of people who have really valuable opinions and really valuable thoughts, but they're not so talkative. And so we don't hear them. Right. And I think that that's a problem. And I think that as leaders, we need to kind of reach out to those people and get those thoughts out of them. Right. How do you see that happening? Or what have you done to, to enable that? Well, I mean, I think in, in a, in a business setting, um, it's all about being inclusive, you know, after you've worked with people for, for some amount of time, you know, you know, who are the ones, uh, who never hesitate to share their opinion and you know right. who the ones are, uh, who do hesitate to share their opinion. And we hire everybody for a reason. And like I said, I have a lot of amazing engineers. They're all, they're all super smart, every single one, but some of them like to talk more than others. So the ones that don't like to talk so much. There's always a few. Yeah. It's, I think it's, it's our job as leaders to specifically ask for their opinion. Um, cause otherwise you might not get it and you could be missing out on valuable information. Right. Okay. Uh, is morality subjective? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think morality is subjective. I, I don't necessarily believe in morality. I believe in the golden rule. I think that we all have our own version of what morality is, right? Morality is different for every single person. It's different as humans have evolved. Certainly like cavemen had a much different idea of what was moral and immoral versus what we have. Right. Certainly even our ancestors 200 years ago uh, who had slaves have a very different idea of what is moral and, and immoral compared to what we have. Um, certainly even a hundred years ago when we didn't allow women to vote, we had a different idea of what is moral and immoral. Um, right. So I think that, that morality is a constantly evolving thing and there's no like concrete, this is moral and this is immoral. Good. Hard to ask you another question after that one. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, we'll, we'll go different routes. Okay. Um, what kind of music do you like to listen to and Specifically, what do you listen to when you're coding? So I like a lot of reggae. I like a lot of electronic music, alternative rock, some hip hop. When I'm coding, I don't like to listen to music with any words. So right. all instrumental. What kind? Uh, well, electronic music, maybe dubstep, uh, maybe house, maybe trance. Yeah. Um, also, I got some jazz, smooth jazz, especially recently. 1990s style smooth jazz? Oh, yeah. Love that stuff. Yeah. Disappeared. I, it's kind of like you have to find like old yeah. 1990 stuff on YouTube now. It's, yeah, yeah. It's jazz. yeah uh, I recently got into Jazztronica, which, as yeah. you might guess, is yeah, also a, good. Nice. I, I love impressed. this stuff. Right yeah. on. I hardly ever meet Spotify anyone. Spotify has a really good channel on that. Yeah. Yes, for Hip-hop sure. Hip hop jazz too is also really good too. Okay, I'll have to check oh, yeah. that out. Oh yeah. Right on. Big fan. Cool, cool. Um, next show I'm going to is the Glass Animals. Super stoked about that. Okay. Uh, definitely recommend them if, if you haven't heard of them. Um, We'll put it in the show notes. Who, like, who else specifically do you like to listen to in those in those uh, genres? Yeah, your names come to mind. Uh, yeah, so so I, I can think of shows that I'm going to. I'm going to Glass Animals soon. After that, I'm going to Odessa. Um, that's kind of like 
trancey electronic music somewhat. Um, uh, like dubstep, I, I like uh, Glitch Mob, Bass Nectar. Right. Um, in terms of uh, reggae, I really like uh, Hebron Gate, um, Black Uhuru, some of the more classic stuff, Bob Marley, of course. Um, yeah, mix of things. Okay. Uh, when is it time to say quits? Well, I mean, that, that's a very personal question. Um, for me, I, I don't think that I'm ever going to quit building things. I think as long as I live, I'll always have this desire to create things. And, and that's my goal is to always be creating. Um, but hopefully, Coffee Meets Big will be the last job I ever have. Do you think it will be the last job you'll ever have? I think so. Okay. I don't know. It's hard to say. Like, actually, since, since I've been, been in the CTO role, you know, as you can imagine, like, you get a lot of inbound recruitment from really interesting companies. Um, right. And so it's hard to say, you know, like I said, like, I, I follow my passion. And if, if I'm not working at Coffee Meets Bagel sometime in the future and something really interesting comes my way, then sure, sure, I'll take it. But, um, me, my dream is to finish Coffee Meets Bagel whenever that happens. Uh, move to Costa Rica, get a casitas on the beach, uh, surf every day, and, and build my things. Sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> um, what terrifying event happened to you in the past few years that had the most impact in your life? Hmm. I can think of a couple terrifying events. Um, about a year ago, we had a company outing. We played bubble soccer, and uh, I blew out my knee. I just destroyed like every ligament in my knee and so I that's great for company outing <laughs> i couldn't walk great morale for, builder right there yeah i couldn't walk for like three months um you know I was, I was a little worried it would never be the same i'm still recovering still going to physical therapy um wow a couple of years ago when i was traveling i was actually in costa rica um and i got mugged and beaten pretty badly uh, by three guys that was that was kind of terrifying. Mugged and beaten in, mm -hmm. in that order. Well, it was yeah. It kind of it kind of all happened really fast. I was I was riding my bicycle down like a dirt road at night, and going back to my apartment, and um, three guys just jumped out of the bushes. They had masks on, bandanas, wow. and uh, they attacked me. I think that they had. I was working at like this co working space in Puerto Viejo, which is on the Caribbean coast of Costa Rica, and you know. I had my nice laptop, my, my cell phones, um, my, my iPad. So they probably saw me with all these yeah, things. Casey, they knew I had them in my backpack and uh, they jumped me. They tried to take all my things. Um, they didn't have weapons, so I tried to fight them. And um, they beat me pretty good, but they weren't able to get my things. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, that was pretty terrifying. What did that do? to your life like how do you what did you learn from that exactly or how did it change you yeah i mean so right after that i i was that was on the caribbean side of costa rica the next day yeah. I, I moved to the the pacific side which is only like a two-hour drive away and you know it's i think it's a harsh a harsh wake-up call into the the divide that there is between what we have and what other people don't have right um and it was it was a little bit of a wake up call, and um, I think more than anything, it, it just made me grateful for the opportunity that I had to travel around the world as a software engineer, yeah. and to have all the things that I want, and to live in paradise. And um, 
hopefully made me a little bit, a little bit more gracious. Great. Uh, what kind of hobbies do you have outside of work? So right now I'm big into running. Uh, I got into running after I hurt my knee and I was like, okay, like I've always wanted to run a marathon. So I'm training for a marathon right now, the Portland Marathon up in, Good for you. Um, yeah, up in Portland, Oregon. Uh, I recently ran the San Francisco half a couple weeks ago. Okay. Um, so that's my thing right now. I also salsa dance um, once a week or so. Oh, and cool. um, before, before I hurt my knee, I was into Brazilian jiu-jitsu. That's probably my, my favorite activity to do. Uh, but my doctor is not allowing me to do that until my knee is a little better. Okay. That would explain how you were able to at least like compete with three muggers, I guess, right? Maybe, maybe. Um, I mean, they were, they were young guys. They were probably late teens, early twenties. Okay. Um, and I mostly just covered up and took the beating. It wasn't like, <laughs> it wasn't like I hurt them. Okay. Got it. How do you make time for these activities? I mean, it must be a lot of work that you manage in here. How do you do it? You know, wake up early, try not to go to bed too late. I believe in getting my workout in before work. Right. I think if you get your workout in before work, then uh, you have plenty of time uh, to either work late or right. finish work at a reasonable time and have some time in the evening. So, you know, I, for me, as long as I have the discipline to get my workout in the morning, I feel like I have plenty of time in my life. Very good. Anything else you want to share? Only other thing uh, to toot our horn here is that uh, we have two high-level engineering positions open at Coffee Meets Bagel. One is uh, engineering manager position on our back end, uh, managing about five engineers and uh, building out our platform to scale to millions and millions of users. Um, the other one is a senior data scientist helping us uh, optimize our algorithm and uh, take dating to the next level. Okay, wonderful. Uh, and where can our audience find more about you? Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, yeah. Instagram? Uh, LinkedIn is good. Uh, I'm pretty sure I'm the only Kareem Varel on LinkedIn. I also have a personal blog. We'll put the link to the show notes. Okay, good. I have a personal blog, kareemvarela.com. Uh, we have a tech blog, tech.coffeemeetsbagel.com. Our jobs page is at coffeemeetsbagel.jobs. Cool. All right, Corinne, thanks so much. All right, thank you, Cameron. It's been a pleasure. Hi, thanks so much for listening. Your feedback is really important to us. We really want to learn how we can make it better. Let us know who you want to listen to. If there's certain questions you want us to ask, please reach out to us on all the socials. You can find us at the Devive Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Feel free to email me directly at Cameron, C-A-M-E-R-O-N at devibe.io. That's devibe, D-E-V-I-B-E dot I-O. Thanks again.